0: So the new Lord of the Rings show came out yesterday and I didn't watch it. So the new Lord of the Rings show came out and I didn't watch it. So I can't comment on the quality of it, but I, I talked about it so damn much leading up to it even coming out that I feel like I have to say something. I can't I honestly just can't resist. I just can't resist. The most even take I saw. Well, there's a there's a guy who I find very reasonable. I feel like he has pretty you know he has his beliefs, but he—I feel like he has a pretty balanced take on things. Uh, he, his—he watched it and he said, basically, the diversity casting is very distracting, and it's not the worst thing ever, like story-wise, but it's—it's—it's it's it's very thin, and you really feel no connection to the characters. That's a big thing that I experienced with movies in the last number of years. It was one of the issues with the, the new Star Wars movies I saw, beyond just some stupid decisions that I didn't like, just stupid story decisions, which <laughs> I'm just going to talk about Star Wars now, but like when I watched the first of the new Star Wars that came out a few years ago, I can't even remember what it's called, whatever that first, the first one of the new trilogy, I just remember thinking like, yeah, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world. But the whole thing felt like a fan service where it's like they were winking the entire time being like don't forget this is a star wars movie like they were having characters say the same lines they say in the original trilogy like han solo i think says something and c-3po or somebody might as well and it's like we know it's star wars like we know we're watching star wars like you don't have to literally repeat the exact same lines that these characters say in the original trilogy to remind us who that is and what this is. Like, we're all very aware of the fact that this is Star Wars. So right away, that took me out of it. But beyond that, like, one of my issues was just not feeling anything about the characters. And I was open. You know, I was—I felt like I was pretty open. I didn't go in thinking, like, I'm, I'm just going to hate these Star Wars movies, but... Yeah, I noticed that was this guy's complaint about the new Lord of the Rings, and he said the diversity and everything was very distracting. You know, when it's a medieval setting like that, especially a world that you know, like if you've been a fan of Lord of the Rings, you know that world so well, you know the dynamics. If you've read the books and seen the movies, and I think those movies are great, you know, you you have a vivid understanding of the world. So like, this is clearly trying to offset that. But what's funny about it? I don't even really have anything to say about that because I haven't seen it. I'm not going to say too much. I really make a sincere effort, and I don't always succeed, but I make a sincere effort to not truly criticize something I haven't experienced myself. I feel like I can criticize things that are that I see, like playing a certain role or something. Like even if I haven't seen a show or a movie, sometimes I can kind of, sometimes I can just kind of tell it's playing a sinister role in our culture. But when it comes to the actual quality of something, I don't want to say. I don't want to comment too much. But one thing I did see today, and that's the reason I'm even talking about it, is that apparently on Rotten Tomatoes, on this site, Rotten Tomato, it got a really bad audience score, and it had a really high critic score. And people are saying that it got review-bombed. Oh, this cat! How come every time somebody comes up with a new catchphrase, that has "bombed" in it? It it grates on me. Like when people say "photo bombed," like it, that is the term. I'm not going to come up with a better term than "photo bombed" because that's the only way to explain what you're talking about. Like, if you were to have a conversation with somebody and say, like, oh, yeah, the, we were taking a photo, and this guy, he, like, walked into the picture, and he, he, like, we didn't see him, and he was behind us, and he made a goofy face, and someone would be like, oh, you mean photobombed. Oh, you mean photo bombed? So to avoid having to, it's what I've said about selfie and stuff. It's like the words are stupid. You know, words like selfie and photobomb are really stupid, but if you're trying to be a real live human being, having conversations with people, you just have to bite, bite it bite what? I don't know. You just have to bite it <laughs> and say, uh, I don't know what I'm thinking there. Is that a phrase? Is, is it a phrase to say, like, you just have to bite it. I guess grit your teeth. I'm thinking of gritting your teeth. You just have to grit your teeth and say, photo bomb selfie. I'll do this guy. Photo bomb my selfie. I it's the worst of the worst. Got a, a, a one, two punch right there. One, two punch right to your, your ball sack right there. Like, like being a man and like saying that out loud. Oh, I was taking a selfie and this guy photobombed it. I actually did photobomb a selfie. I was leaving a bar many years ago and these two probably like 21-year-old girls were like outside of a bar walking in front of me and they were like trying to take this selfie and I kind of walked a little faster so that I'd just like not appear right behind them like a creep, but just so I'd be in it. And they, I mean, they, they laughed or something. They didn't think it was bad, but I'm in someone's picture of being a maniac somewhere. Um, I'd love to see their post. I'd love to see like where they posted it. And the caption's probably like, oh, we were leaving the bar and like this totally creepy guy photobombed us. He photobombed our selfie. We all got to be that guy at some point. But uh, review bombed. What got me going on the bomb train was I saw like these articles that are like the new Lord of the Rings show is getting review bombed because people hate the diversity. That's what it all says. They don't even know. You know, there's no way to to measure that. There's no way to actually know that all the people who voted who gave the show a negative score are doing it just because of the diversity. Because like I've said before about that, the, the mandatory diversity in casting, it's often a symptom of other problems with the production. Because they're so preoccupied with those things, something suffers. Because that's the mentality. Because usually when that's a concern of people, they don't tell a good story. When they have that very clever idea of being like, let's do Lord of the Rings, but it's going to have Black Hobbits. Black Elf, usually a lot of other things are going to suffer in that production. It's not that it suffers just because they decided to throw in novelty black characters to get attention and send some signal. It's also like everything sucks about it. But it's really, it's an ingenious thing they've built into these, to this thing they're doing. Because it means that, like, you can't criticize it without criticizing that. I brought this up when I was talking about the Anne Boleyn show or movie, whatever it was. What's the difference between a show and a movie? Where, like, when they made a, a very dark-skinned black Anne Boleyn, a very ahistorical, obvious, you know, socio-political message in that. Uh, When they did that, like, I was reading that review on a very popular site, a very mainstream popular site that reviews movies or shows. I don't know what it is. A production. And how the girl reviewing it basically said it sucks. She's like, oh, this sucks. But great decision to cast her. She's the most noble Anne Boleyn ever. Because it's like, you can't criticize that. Like, even if you're criticizing this Anne Boleyn production with a black Anne Boleyn, you, you have to make sure, t- if, you, if you're part of this, you know, if you're part of, if that's the status quo a- around you, you have to make it clear that you support the very noble, dignified Black Anne Boleyn. You just don't like anything else. Because it's built in that if you don't like it, hey, we, we're not sure about you. Hey, I couldn't help but notice that you didn't seem to enjoy Black Anne Boleyn movie. You know, what kind of wondering about you? You have to profess, like, oh, no, no, no. I love that casting decision. It's everything else that sucks. And so it's the same thing with this new Lord of the Rings, where it's like people don't like it. And while the diversity in casting, I mean, that does disrupt the world that we know, Tolkien's world that we know. That was a very deliberate decision to change his world. But you're not allowed to criticize that decision, even if that's just one symptom of the whole thing being lackluster. And what's funny about this this Rotten Tomato site is this came up before, this discrepancy between the critic score, who's a very small select group of people who work for that company, who work for Rotten Tomato. Rotten Tomato. Rotten Tomato. Ron Mayo, But these people, they work, these, these professional critics, they work for, for Ron Mayo. They work for Ron DeMeo. And, uh, <laughs> and they're, they're very biased people. Not just because they're critics, but like their sociopolitical biases play a role. Like when Dave Chappelle's special came out a year or two ago, the critics gave it abysmally low scores. Abysmally low. Not just like I don't find this funny, like, but the sort of scores you would give like a like a you know, an open mic night comedian if he did a special. Extremely low. And it's not like Dave Chappelle, some has been who's who's lost his ability either. You know, I'm not even a Dave Chappelle fan. Like he's a good example of what I've talked about on here where I don't have to find it personally funny to recognize the skill and the ability and the fact that he is funny. He's very funny. Even if a joke doesn't make me laugh, he's very good at what he does. You know, like, when I say somebody's funny, it doesn't mean that that appeals to my taste. It's like music or anything. Like, my ego doesn't have to be a part of of assessing that. Like, I don't have to say, oh, Dave Chappelle didn't make me laugh in his special, therefore he's not good at comedy. I'm not the fucking king. You know, where where if the jester doesn't make me laugh, he's not funny and needs to die. It's just, okay, that's not for me completely. I mean, Dave Chappelle has made me laugh, for sure, but I wouldn't say I'm a Dave Chappelle guy at all. But these critics, they gave it an abysmally low ranking, and they did that because he made some jokes that made them uncomfortable. You know, he's obviously gotten a lot of flack in recent years for, uh, you know, speaking out. Not even speaking out, but just even making light of... This gender bender craze that's been going on. He's, he's the male JK Rowling. I hear they, I hear they have a relationship. I hear that Dave Chappelle and JK Rowling have a relationship. I, if they don't have one, like I'm going to write a story. I'm going to write fan fiction. I'm going to write fan fiction where Dave Chappelle and JK Rowling, JK Rowling, and Ron DeMeo, <laughs> where, where they have a relationship. But, uh, you know, he got a lot of flack for that from certain groups. And these reviewers on Rotten Tomato, you know, they, they gave him a low score for that reason. There's no other reason to give somebody who's as good as Dave Chappelle, even if you think he's a has-been, like, even if you were to think Dave Chappelle's not as good as he once was to give him an abysmally low score i mean i don't want to i don't want to be wrong but i think it was something like ridiculously low like it wasn't like they gave him 50% even i want to say it was something like i mean I, i'm i'm almost remembering single digits i'm almost remember I, I don't know if i'm exaggerating that but it was low and they clearly did it because they thought that he was making offensive jokes and he offended their socio-political clique And in that case, the audience score was really high. And in that case, it's not like there's some extremist online group, you know. It's not like this is like 4chan or or like some sort of Twitter mob who's going to vote Dave Chappelle's special up. Like, he's the kind of guy that like, he's so fucking mainstream. Like, normal bros that I work with, normal people, you know, like, they, they love guys like that. And so, like Dave Chappelle getting a really high audience score and a really low critic score shows showed that the critics were completely fixated on a socio political agenda, whereas like the average person, like even if some people like gave it a high score just to j- just for their own little statement to be like, oh, so you're going to protest Dave Chappelle? Well, I'm going to give him five thumbs up. And even if some people did that, like there's a high chance that a Dave Chappelle comedy special is going to be really popular. So we saw it like right there that the critics are untrustworthy. I mean, really, you can understand. I don't believe in violence, but like you can understand. I don't know, the last few years, the last five or six years, and especially the last few, they've really shown us why when like a, when like a revolution takes place, they go after people like that. They go after the journalists and the critics and people. You can really understand, like, why those people get rounded up when a revolution takes place. They're like, man, you're the people. Like, there might have been politicians and these these very powerful figures who were behind all this or doing the worst of the worst. But it's like, it's these people who are just chirping all fucking day and pushing these agendas in every possible place. Like, I've I talked a lot about the dictionary.com crossword puzzle, which I haven't done for about a month, but like how that's constantly infused with some of the new terminology and some of this progressive philosophy. And that's not me going crazy and seeing it everywhere. It truly does make its way into everything, even when it's totally unnecessary. So, this Dave Chappelle thing proved that these critics are very biased, they're very sociopolitically biased. And they'll give a guy who's obviously very skilled at what he does an abysmally low score just because he makes a joke that they don't like. So now we're seeing the opposite where this new Lord of the Rings show, the Lord of the Rings show, the Lord of the Rings show, is uh, getting very low audience scores. Not quite as bad as Dave Chappelle got from the critics, which is funny, but it was in like the 30% range. So an F. For going by the school grading system, thirty something percent is an F. But the critics gave it a very high score because these 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 same critics who would try to, you know, dump wastewater on Dave Chappelle for making one offensive joke that probably isn't even that offensive, but those same people, of course, they're going to praise a new show, a new Lord of the Rings that messes with what they perceive the status quo to be, which is like, I mean, I, I saw an article that said it was talking about the new Lord of the Rings that talked about how it was, it, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something to the effect of, oh, this is, you know, fighting Tolkien's legacy of racism or something like, like the framing is that Lord of the Rings was racist for being inspired by people of fair European skin. And the framework of this is that anything that doesn't have that Burger King Kids Club casting in it is deliberately exclusionary, that that was done specifically to exclude certain people. And while I I, I honestly don't believe there were significant numbers of black people or minorities who were saying, gee, I really wish I could get into Lord of the Rings, but I just don't see myself on screen. People have been convinced to think that way, but I don't think very many people come to that thought organically. I think there's a lot of black people who either just liked it the way it was. Oh, hey, Lord of the Rings is a cool, you know, fantasy story inspired by Northern Europe. I don't need to see myself in that to appreciate that. You know, you don't have to put black characters in a history book to read about the Middle Ages either. And anybody who would think like, oh, I, I, w- I would have gotten into Lord of the Rings, but there were no black characters. I mean, anybody who genuinely feels that way and hasn't just been programmed to think that way by this movement, anybody who, who really genuinely believes that, that shows such an ethnic narcissism to think that like you can only appreciate something if you see somebody with your skin color in it. Oh, I was going to get into that, but I can't, because I don't see myself. I mean, I can watch a movie that's just aliens. Like, we don't watch movies that are about supernatural creatures and say, oh, I really wish I could get into this, but there's no humans in it. Who wants to watch this movie about aliens? It excludes me, because I'm a human. You don't think that way if a story's good, if it makes sense. And I would say Lord of the Rings, out of any story in modern history, it makes a lot of sense. He created a very self-contained world with its own lore and logic and just the level of, I mean, that's the, the benchmark for all world building. That's the benchmark for all world building. It truly is, though. So this unparalleled quality of world was built that people have loved all kinds of people all over the world and you felt left out because there were no dark skinned people or or whatever it is you think it's just that shows such a level of narcissism to me if you genuinely believe that but I don't even believe there are many people who think that way I think that's the message that's pushed but uh This Rotten Tomatoes thing is interesting, though, because, you know, they're they're, they're just straight up saying that it was review bombed because of race, which if it's fair to not like a Dave Chappelle special and give it a very low score because he makes a joke about transgender people, and that's the professional paid critics doing that, voting it down for that reason, it should be totally fine to, to not like Lord of the Rings for whatever reason you want. If the diversity is distracting, or if you feel that conflicts with the world that Tolkien built, that should be a fair thing to do. If it's also fair to not like Dave Chappelle. But I mean, this whole like double standards thing I avoid. You see a lot of politics today is just pointing out, oh hey, you have double standards. Oh, hey, you're a hypocrite. You could do that all day. And that's how pundits stay busy. Like if you're a pundit, you could easily say in response to something like this, Oh, hey, you don't seem to mind hating something when it doesn't fit your sociopolitical agenda. Yet you're mad at other groups of people because you perceive their hate to come from their sociopolitical agenda. You know, you could point stuff like that, at, stuff like that out all day. And people do. Some people make a living doing it. I'm glad they do it so I don't have to. <clears throat> I'm glad that there are pundits out there who point out the hypocrisies and double standards and keep busy with that because I don't enjoy doing it because it nobody cares. When you point out an obvious hypocrisy or double standard, nobody cares. People get mad and they, they point their finger and they say, Oh, look, you're doing the opposite of what you said or "You, you know, you're a hypocrite. They don't care. It makes no difference to them that they're hypocritical. They believe so strongly that they know what's right and wrong that they don't care if they're a hypocrite because they think everything they're doing is—they think everything they're doing strengthens the cause they're fighting for. But it's—it's it's really an ingenious mechanism. You know, you can see it in all kinds of different places. It's really, it truly is an ingenious mechanism. The one where if you put a certain type of character, actor in a movie, or if you write in certain types of characters, that anybody who doesn't like that thing can be accused of being prejudiced. When you shoehorn in black characters, you can, anybody who pushes back, you can say, oh, I guess you hate it because you're racist. I guess you hate it because you're racist. I bet you hate it because you're racist that's my song it's such a, that voice has gotten so psychotic over the last couple of years I feel like it used to be at least a little more normal now it's like really breathy uh, <laughs> but that, that's built in like you now have this out and you can see it with like female characters and stuff as well like when they change the lead of a story to be a woman oh so you don't like it because it's a woman huh Oh, you don't like the new Star Wars because it's a female lead. You know, you can easily accuse that. And you see it in politics as well. It's like when you make a big deal out of the fact that Kamala Harris is a dark-skinned woman, and she's the first dark-skinned woman to be vice president... When you make a big deal about how that's her identity and that's what she represents, now anybody who doesn't like that very unlikable woman can be accused oh you yeah. don't like her because she she's a dark-skinned woman. It's just built in. It's it's an ingenious mechanism. As as frustrating as it is, you can see where it's very effective. You 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 frame a human being or a movie or whatever it is in those terms, and now anybody who doesn't like that thing for any number of reasons, you can now accuse them of being prejudiced, that it's their prejudice that's forcing them not to like things. And so you, you can see where these, even just a movie review site like Ron DeMeo, you can even see where something like that is, you know, a propaganda wing. And it's annoying to say that. I don't enjoy saying, "Oh, it's all propaganda," but you can see where it's true. It's like the people they hire to review their movies clearly have a uniform agenda when reviewing these things. And we, and then what's interesting about this Lord of the Rings thing is the articles about it were were saying clearly. There's clearly, if the critics liked it, it must be good. But we're so far past those Siskel and Ebert fantasy years where. There's actually these people out there who have the best taste and we can trust them. I mean, that's, a, that's from a bygone era. Like, I remember when I was like 15 and like first getting into music and not really sure if I wanted to make music or what I was going to do creatively. And I remember thinking, like, I could be a music reviewer. You know, some people have a, their dream is like, I could work at a record store. Other people is like I could review music. Because you see, people are paid to do that. I would read magazines and I'm like, people are paid just to review new albums and talk about music. I could do that. But it became very quick, like with the internet and everything, it became quick. That was just gone. The idea that there could be like a Lester Bangs or someone like that with any authority. It's just whether, whether a guy like Lester Bangs even had any authority or if he had even had good taste, it was an era though where like you needed people like that. Like, you needed people in a position of authority to review things and, you know, just just to go th- to process things. We don't need that anymore. You know, we really don't need reviewers, and as a result, they really have no credibility or authority. So it's funny to see this issue with Lord of the Rings framed as, like, the critics liked it on Rotten Tomato. So it must be good. Like, who are you to disagree with the critics? Oh, these people who disagree with the critics they must they must disagree with them solely because it's a review bombing campaign by racists it's an ingenious mechanism like i said and some of the stuff that gets me thinking about my childhood because i mean some of this stuff was already going on when i was growing up like you did see token minority characters getting written into stories and things like that it wasn't over the top though and i feel like it was done fairly well and I've questioned whether this is just nostalgia, whether I was, like, too young to, to care. But I think I do think it was different. Like, my absolute favorite movie when I was a little kid was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And they wrote in this black Muslim character, a black Muslim. He's a black Muslim. They wrote in uh, Azim, and he was played by Morgan Freeman. And he was my favorite character. The only black guy in the movie... He has a huge sword. He's very religious and pious, and I just love—he's just a great character. He's like a wizard, but they obviously just like wrote in a random black guy to be in Robin Hood. But the the thing is, though, like when you watch that movie, they incorporated him very well. Like they, it's like Robin Hood starts out and he was like serving in war, and he's a war uh, a prisoner of war in Jerusalem or the Middle East. And Azim, played by Morgan Freeman, is another guy who's a prisoner of war. And they escape together, and Robin Hood, Robin Hood saves his life. So Azim has a life debt to him and comes to him with England. And he gets—people don't trust him. Some people—I think there's one point where people try to attack him because he's a black Muslim. But they do that well. Like, it's not over the top. There's just, like, a couple little things. Like, some of these English villagers, like, they're like, oh, the painted man. They call him the Painted Man. Oh, it's the Painted Man. Like one point, like they're passing around a jug of alcohol at the fire, and one of the one of the merry men tries to avoid passing it to Azim, who it turns out doesn't drink because he's a devout Muslim. But like Robin Hood gets mad. He's like, he's my friend too. <laughs> you know. So that, that's part of that, and. I feel like it was done very organically. It's also really hard to, you really just can't fuck with Morgan Freeman in the 90s either. Like that's a very, everybody loved him. There was nobody like him. And uh, so it's really hard to criticize like his role in any movie like that. Because at that time, like, he brought a certain magic to any role he played. So, like, having Morgan Freeman in a Robin Hood movie just worked. He was able to do it. You know, people loved him, of course. You know, like, normal people, like, fucking love Morgan Freeman. But it's true. He had a certain magic about him, too, which I think made it different. He wasn't just some random guy they wrote in. But it does get me thinking, I'm like, you know, could that have been seen the same way back then? Well, at that time, it, you know, it wasn't really over the top. Like, you did see things like that. And speaking of Dave Chappelle, like, full circle, Robin Hood, Men in Tights spoofed that, which is actually really funny. Like, they they had, Dave, like, a very young Dave Chappelle, he, he played a black merry man in Prince of Tights. And, uh... They had him wearing a back, like one of those little green Robin Hood hats, but they had him wearing it backward and it had a, like a snap adjuster, like a, like a ball cap. So the idea was like, he's black, so he's wearing a backwards cap. And he, he was kind of like a stereotype of a black guy, but in England. And that was funny because they were commenting on that. Like they, they were kind of commenting on the tokenism. They're kind of, this, this is me in a college class. They were commenting on the tokenism. Uh, that's how you get by in college. But no, it, it, that was funny too. It's funny that Dave Chappelle did that, that he was actually the one who did that role. Because it was it was like, it's like people were aware of tokenism. So it wasn't that, that nobody was aware of that at the time. Like when a movie or, or a TV show or something would just randomly have a black character kind of out of nowhere. I mean, I think Robin Hood's a good example you know, it had to be done in a way that made sense. And Azim made sense. Like, he wasn't just a black Englishman living in, you know, uh, where do they live? Nottingham. You know, it wasn't like they had Morgan Freeman just be this, like, random black man living in Nottingham. Like, it made sense to have it like Robin Hood met him in a prison in the Middle East. And then when he came back to England, the guy owed him a life debt. It wasn't just here's a black guy. Oh, what? You're racist. You didn't. You don't think that there were black Englishmen. You know. Oh, you're distracted by the fact that like one of the merry men is randomly black. No, it was a, it was a Muslim from the Middle East. And at the time, I was aware of that. From the time I was a tiny kid, I was aware of of the mandatory diversity Burger King Kids Club thing, and we would joke about it. When we would get a book at school, like when they would issue history books or math books. We would always joke when we'd be like, oh, it's going to have a kid in a wheelchair, a black kid, an Asian kid, like a ginger. Like, we would always joke about what was on the cover. Any kind of stock photography of kids, it didn't seem to infect, like, every part of the culture. It was more like really generic educational stuff would have a kid of every race hanging out at a playground on the cover. But you didn't like it It was it didn't it made sense in that context because it's like, yeah, I get it. These are school books that will be used throughout the entire country. It makes sense to represent different types of kids. But we were still aware of what they were doing. And we were aware of the sort of like it's a small world. It's like the Captain Planet crew. There was that cartoon Captain Planet where all the kids are of a different race and they put their rings together and create Captain Planet. that was a really weird show. If they had Captain Planet today, he'd be talking about global warming because it was about environmentalism and stuff. I liked it. I liked Captain Planet. But there was a lot of that stuff, and you were aware of it when you saw it. Like, my friends and I would joke about it. We'd be like, oh, yep, they got one kid of every type. All you need is the kid in the wheelchair, and you're set. But then it kind of grew from there. And interestingly, it coincided with black culture becoming really dominant among white youth. Like during an era when young people were listening to more rap and R&B, watching black movies, really into all these different black actors and comedians and things like thinking about where I grew up, it was a lot of the culture that people were consuming was black and not crossover, not like black people being shoehorned into other things. It was just straight up like we like kids were like, we want black stuff. But stuff that's like a, a part, a product of black culture, not a random black person getting snuck into another story or anything like that. But it, it's interesting that it, as that was happening, as white youth were just starting to get obsessed with even taking on the language and identities of black people, they were just obsessed with black culture, and it dominated my teenage years. Like the people I knew, my school, and everything. It's still dominant. Some of the only music you hear getting blasted out of cars is rap. And, but it's interesting that that, coincide, that coincided with this increase in like, well, we need to have black people represented so they're not left out. We need to have this group represented. Meanwhile, people are becoming more open to entertainment from people of other cultures, but yet this this sort of propaganda machine got churning you know the wheels of this machine got got turning faster and faster and there's no brakes on that you know we've learned there's no brakes on it like you you can't stop with a black and boleyn you can't stop with black hobbits you know basically like you know we we really I, i don't even know if we can stop once we have a black Gandalf played by a CGI George Floyd. Like, I don't even know if that would be enough to stop and say, I think we've gone, I think we've, we explored this enough. And oddly enough, too, it's created more resentment. You know, it has created a lot more resentment in people. And not prejudiced people, just people who feel like everything sucks, I think is where a lot of the resentment comes from. It's like, you're doing this with everything. You're, you're doing this with literally everything, and it's making everything suck. And it doesn't seem to get the response that they want out of this minority demographic either. Like, I don't think we'll see a major increase in black people being into Lord of the Rings. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I don't think we'll see that because of this. Because as, as I've said before, who this satisfies is the progressive liberal who feels good watching it. The same person who, if they're a professional reviewer, writes a review of it and says, I didn't like it, but the casting, the Black Anne Boleyn is, oh, she was so great. It's that, well, that's a professional reviewer having to wrangle with like how to criticize a show without being called racist. There's a lot of people who just sitting in their house watching Netflix or HBO. They go through that internally, too. Where whether they like the show or movie or or don't, what they're saying to themselves is, oh, but like, I'm doing the right thing by supporting this. And, you know, there was, you know, this came up a few years ago, like this mechanism I've been talking about. When uh, there was the Ghostbusters movie that came out played by women and people hated it, I guess. A lot of people didn't like it. I never saw it. So once again, I can't tell you the quality of it, but uh, it became another thing where it's like, oh, you hate it because it's played by women. It's a built-in defense. It's a way of shutting down critics. It's, it's a way of minimizing negative feedback because you can turn around and accuse the critics of having intolerant views. Meanwhile, these things never have really any staying power. They they have no lasting impact. They just come and go. But uh, I find it all really fascinating, really. I find it fascinating that this is escalated with no breaks. I find it fascinating that... These sociopolitical philosophies have truly infected everything they can. And I've seen this with people I know personally. I mentioned, I think it was in 2020 maybe, maybe early 2021, how a guy I know through underground music, who's a nice guy, very smart, talented, but he was really upset because Guitar World magazine, which he probably doesn't even read, but Guitar World magazine, or one of those, circus, I don't know, probably probably Guitar World or something, one of those, like, musician magazines, it made a list, like, some guy wrote a list that was, like, the top 10 rock drummers of all time, and they were all white. And this guy that I know was just extremely offended and upset. He's a white man, but he was extremely offended and upset because he was like, they didn't include a single black drummer they didn't include a single black drummer and then he went on about how like black people have contributed so much to the rhythm section to the to the development of drums and bass and rhythm sections like to not have like a black drummer on this list it's basically like applying affirmative action to everything including taste because this was just one guy's subjective list like i would look at a list of the top 10 drummers and just go oh yeah yeah, you picked like Keith Moon. Oh, dude, I uh, I can't believe you think Keith Moon's one of the best drummers. It's it's always the same guys. It's always like Keith Moon and the same list of people. I look at that stuff and I'm like, I I may agree or not agree. I I don't even care. I don't even think about who the top 10 drummers, in my opinion, are. But I just see a list like that and I'm like, it's one guy's taste. Like to me, there's like, unless somebody's a really interesting and compelling person, I'm not going to be interested in their top 10 of anything. But to apply that affirmative action mindset to be like, you didn't consider, and it truly was a list of like rock, like it might even have been classic rock drummers or something. It might even have been something ultra specific where the vast majority of drummers are white. But this guy I know was just, he's a smart guy. That's what gets me about it. But he was very upset because basically affirmative action wasn't applied to this list of drummers in a music magazine, in a generic music magazine. And so it really knows no bounds. There's there's no stopping it. Because if you're if that's your way of thinking, you see it everywhere. And it becomes a very inorganic way of living. The idea that like you can't have personal taste. You can't make a list of your favorite drummers without including this group. So you can understand what what's going on in the casting industry. And you can understand like what's going on in casting in Hollywood. Where like even if somebody doesn't support, even if they're not excited about having to do this with every single movie or show, they go along with it because they, they have a job to do. And they may even have taken on that belief, you know, because some of these people may have gotten weeded out. You know, we know that like over 10 years ago, there was a somebody involved in casting The Hobbit movies when they were making those who got fired. Because they just openly said they were looking for like a fair-skinned elf. And somebody who had tried out for the role was, I think, Middle Eastern. And she was extremely offended and reported that she was told they were looking for someone with fair skin to play an elf. Because guess what? Elves have really fucking white skin and really fair hair in most cases. But So that's like 2010 or something that, you know, The Hobbit, somebody involved in casting The Hobbit got fired for just saying they wanted a fair-skinned elf. So I think some of these people have been weeded out of the industry or they've, they've gone along with it. And maybe they even believe it. Like they believe in this sort of affirmative action approach to casting. Just like this guy I know for no reason is mad at a, a guitar magazine for not having that affirmative action mentality with drummers. But it's very inorganic. You know, it leads to a very inorganic mentality where it's all strategic. And uh, people are aware of it. That's the interesting thing, too, is how aware people are That, like, their initial analysis of many things now, entertainment, anything, their analysis, one of the first things they think of is, let's check on the diversity quota. It's almost like a new form. Like I always make fun of the guy who was like, oh my God, this is a sausage party. Like I always hated that type of guy. And they were real. Like I knew him in high school and stuff. Like you'd be hanging out with a group of guys and there'd be a guy who just goes, oh dude, this is, a, this is turning into a sausage party. Where's the girls? You know, that fucking idiot. It's kind of like a, a different version of that where I've been sitting there watching a show with other white people before. Obviously, I I was coerced into doing it, into watching some show with a group of people, but people like progressives and people, they will just watch like a TV show and they'd be like, oh, this is, this is so white. Oh, this is a sausage party. Oh, this, God, this show is so white. Like if the cast is mostly white, they notice that right away. They don't think like, does this make sense in the story? They just notice that. And they notice it not because it actually matters to them. They notice it because like it's been built into their head that like you have to represent different people all the time. So it's it's like to me, it's like the same, like making that sort of comment, like watching something and being like, oh, it's all white people. You might as well be saying, oh, it's a sausage party. Same sort of mentality to me. Because in both cases, they're like trying to signal something. Because the guy who says, oh, it's a sausage party. I got, where are the girls? That dude's really insecure. He, the guy like that, he's experienced some, he's experiencing like gay panic or something where he thinks that hanging out with a group of six guys without women there is gay. And he's overanalyzing, like he's not, he's not in the moment. He's not enjoying spending time with friends. He's thinking about how it comes across and it's weird when someone lets everybody know that. It's really weird when a person who's just hanging out with a group of people lets everybody know that his brain is somewhere else. He's thinking about dicks. And it's scaring him that, he's, that there's no women there. Kind of the same thing with this thing, where, like, when people see that, oh, this, this is mostly white people. I hope nobody sees me watching this. It's like that person is, like, signaling to other people. Like, in the same way the sausage party guy is like, I'm not gay. Nobody asked. I know, but I'm just letting you know I'm not gay. It's kind of like the same thing with the race, where it's like people are watching something, and it's like, oh, this is so white. Oh, my God. Oh, this is a little too white. It, that's basically telling people, like, I'm not racist. And it's like, nobody said you were. No, no, I'm just letting you know I'm not racist kind of the same mentality it's this insecurity and this need to signal and it shows that your brain is in another place and you're analyzing this stuff weirdly and you don't want to be the opposite of that either like you don't want to watch every single thing that has black people in it and be like oh my god they're they're just shoehorning this these people in oh my god it's more affirmative action casting because an organic story is an organic story like i think like years ago My ex-girlfriend used to... She obsessed with that show, True Blood. We watched the whole thing. That vampire show, True Blood. Vampire show, True Blood. We watched that vampire show, True Blood. Uh, And... uh, (laughs) And I I enjoyed it. Like, actually, up to a point, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good show. Had some black characters, but you didn't feel like they were... it, It took place in, like, Louisiana. It took place in the South. They even had a gay black man, Gaylord Blackman was his name. No, they had a gay black man, but it made total sense. It was well done. These were just characters in the show and it made sense. It's Louisiana. There's a lot of people of different race. You know, there's a lot of black people in Louisiana. It didn't feel forced or anything. Cause I mean, at that time, whenever I was watching that, I don't know, like 10, 11, 12 years ago. I was already very well aware of all the things I'm talking about here. Like my attitude and my mind was in the same exact place it's in today. And, but it, it didn't even cross my mind. Like this is even the first time I've ever thought about that. It just randomly came into my brain as an example where I'm like, yeah, you know, a show like True Blood, you have black characters. One of them's gay. They did it well. They chose great actors. It didn't feel unnecessary. I don't know what the books are like. I don't know if these characters are in the books or what, but it really didn't feel forced or anything. But that just shows you, like, even having to say that shows you how this whole thing has been framed. Where, like, if you criticize Black Lord of the Rings, Black Lord of the Rings, as if the whole thing's black, uh, but but if you if you criticize Lord of the Rings having black characters or anything like that, anytime that it feels forced or by design. You then have to like, you have to clarify that you're not prejudiced, and then you have to say, "But I like True Blood, and that had black characters." Like, you almost have to, have to come up with some counter example of like a time that you liked uh, a story with black characters. It forces you to do that. Meanwhile, none of this would even be on your brain if you grew up when I grew up. Like, you didn't, like, you just didn't think of it. It didn't feel unnecessary. And usually it played on it in a funny and intelligent way. Like, Die Hard uh, with a Vengeance, the third Die Hard movie, where it's like a buddy movie, sort of, with, uh, you know, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. Which It's really a shame he overexposed himself, because he was good when he did things selectively. Like he was in a lot of stuff already. You know, he was in a lot of different movies, but he went through a streak there in the 90s where he was really fucking good. And then he just started doing anything and everything. Really overexposed himself. Because in small doses, Samuel L. Jackson's fucking great. Like even in Goodfellas, where he plays a very small role. He's not, he's not in that mode yet where he's playing Samuel L. Jackson in every movie. You know, because that was that's a problem, too. Like, guys reach a point. Where they start casting them just to play that same guy they always are, and Samuel L. Jackson became that should not have been in Star Wars. Terrible decision to put him in Star Wars. Distract because that's not because he's black, because <laughs> uh, it's so distracting. Like like what made the original Star Wars so powerful is that aside from maybe Alec Guinness, who if you're like unless you're old, you wouldn't really associate <coughs> with anything else. Baddie, what's going on man? Uh, you know Star Wars like what made it significant is these were mostly unknown actors when you make a new Star Wars movie and you have Samuel L. Jackson you're like I'm looking at Samuel L. Jackson same reason that I having Johnny Depp unmasked as the bad wizard at the end of Fantastic Beasts ruined the whole movie for me because at the end of the movie there's Johnny Depp looking like gothed out stylized Johnny Depp post Pirates of the Caribbean Johnny Depp there's Johnny Depp oh immersion lost you know including Johnny Depp just doing what he always does ruined the movie for me it left a bad taste in my mouth as I left the theater my girlfriend at the time too she loved JK Rowling and Harry Potter and all that shit I didn't really know anything about it but I loved the movie I really enjoyed it and uh, <laughs> the last movie he saw, he liked it was Fantastic Beasts, but no, I really did enjoy it. And but but still, that bad taste, just it's all I ever talk about. Like I don't even remember the stuff I liked about it. I just remember like seeing Johnny Depp's stupid fucking bleach blonde hair slicked back and his earring or whatever the fuck, his little mustache, and just being like, God damn it! That's how I felt with Samuel L. Jackson in the Star Wars prequels, where I was like, I'm just every time he's on the screen, I'm just like, Yep, there's Samuel L. Jackson. I don't see some awesome Jedi. And that can work in certain types of movies. That's the thing. Like you can have big actors who are being themselves in that way they always are in certain movies and it doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Like you don't watch an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and go, man, it sucks he's being Arnold Schwarzenegger in this. It's actually the movies where Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't play Arnold Schwarzenegger that suck. There's certain types of movies and certain types of actors where like, They can do that, but, like, Star Wars isn't one. You know, you have to be very careful with the actors you choose. You have to be very careful. But, uh... Got me going on the Samuel Jackson trip. Going down... uh, I don't even know. I mean, I guess guess just the the point of immersion is, is a big thing, especially with fantasy. When, like, being immersed in a world is one of the attractions of a movie or a story, you have to be very careful. Like, you can break immersion in an action movie and it's not a big deal because it's not really why you're watching it. Like the, like, the pacing of an action movie, it's probably why I like them so much. Because it's just, you don't have to think about anything. Like, there's no reflection. If you're watching an action movie and you're reflecting on it, you're doing something wrong. Because you just watch it and it's like like the pacing and everything, like no time is wasted. It's just everything, you know, every, every, everything is just structured perfectly to like keep you interested without having to think. Like I've never gotten into movies where there's like long drawn out scenes of people sitting at a dinner table not talking or something. I get that people like that. I just can't really, do- I'm a meathead when it comes to movies. So, like, like, an action movie, though, like, you can have, like, Samuel L. Jackson calling someone a motherfucker. And, I, you know, and for that matter, like, I consider Quentin Tarantino movies action movies. Some of them probably are. I haven't seen the newer ones from the last, like, 15 years, but a lot of this, the Quentin Tarantino movies to me are basically action movies. Like, even if they're not an, act, quote-unquote, action movie, he has that sort of mindset. He, he sort of makes his movies that way. And that's why a guy like Samuel L. Jackson can just be Samuel L. Jackson. Um, but it's like when you have a long, drawn-out like meeting of the Jedi Council and Samuel L. Jackson is one of the Jedi Masters, you're just like, fuck, like I, can't even, I can't even pretend this is a real Jedi Council meeting. I can't even pretend this is a real Jedi Council meeting. Speaking of action movies, you know, just thinking about, like, movies as propaganda, this is a difference between then and now, too, because a lot of these action movies were were propaganda. Like, let's just use Red Dawn as a good example. The movie Red Dawn is about kids in, I think, a boarding school, and there's a commie invasion from Russia. These Russian—I don't remember if they're terrorists or if they're from the Russian military. I just don't remember— but either way it's it's a movie about like these red-blooded American boys patriots fighting the commies. It's like during the it's like it came out around the end of the Cold War and it's it's blatant propaganda. Like Red Dawn is blatant propaganda. It's anti-communist propaganda. It's very patriotic. A lot of action movies were that way. A lot of action movies were very pro-America, pro-military, violent. I consider that propaganda. I mean, I think it it glor—like a lot of action movies glorified the American military. They glorified that American patriotism in the face of a foreign enemy. There's no denying that those movies were propaganda in many ways. I knew it at the time is what's funny. Like as a kid, I I was aware of that, but it didn't matter to me. Because like I said, the way those movies are structured, like there's no time for reflection even. It's just like beat, 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 beat. There's no spacing between the beats. And you would hear that. Like, you'd hear criticism. Like, my sister was kind of a hippie, and her boyfriend and her friends were hippies. And, like, they would see me watching action movies and stuff, and they'd kind of chuckle. Because they saw it for what it was. Like, where it's like, oh, yeah, like, you're just a a young American boy. They wouldn't say this shit, but like, they'd joke around about it. And from the way they joked around, it was like, yeah, this is really djangoistic, ultra patriotic, anti commie, you know, pro violent, um, you know, military propaganda. Like, it's all that stuff guns, explosions. But the thing is, they they weren't offended by it. Like, it, it didn't bother them really. And, like, people in turn, like, didn't care what they thought about it. Like, they were allowed to not like these propagandistic action movies. And they could make their jokes and see them for what they were. But nobody was bothered by that. Like, people who loved action movies, like Patriots, if somebody said something to them about that, they would just be like, shut up, commie. And they'd go back to enjoying the explosions. They didn't actually care. They wouldn't be like, oh, you don't like Red Dawn, huh? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna let the the FBI know that you're spreading communist propaganda. I think we got a commie here. I think we need to do something about this commie. Nobody cared that you didn't like it. And so the difference between then and now, though, is these stories that do have a lot of propaganda in them. If you reject that, it's not just like oh yeah yeah whatever. Instead, it's like oh you reject that, huh? You must be part of some massive evil force in our country and we should attack you now we should um, denounce you now like you could push back on movies all the time decades ago it didn't it didn't matter and it was kind of understood that not everybody likes everything it was understood that like You might not like ultra-patriotic, violent, paramilitary action movies. Cool. You know, you don't have to. But now there's this compulsion to like things. Today's propaganda, like, you're supposed to like it, and it's a problem if you don't. And if you don't like it, if it's truly bad, you have to be very careful how you don't like it and what you say about what you don't like. And if that mechanism is built in where it's like, oh, we decided to change the lead character to a woman, or we decided to have black hobbits, if you don't like the thing and that's part of it, you have to be very careful and you, chances are you have to even praise that while criticizing the rest of it. It's it's ingenious. But my philosophy for years, and I've talked about this on here, but for years, my philosophy has been like, let them just destroy everything. None of this stuff is sacred. Let them let them just destroy it all. Cuz like they're the ones being punished. Like the people who are who think that they have to like this stuff or support this stuff, they're the ones who are being punished. Like they're the ones who are having to lie to themselves. They're the ones who are having to lie to other people. You know, you yourself, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You just go, "Oh, that's not for me." You know the corrupting force has gotten so strong that it's corrupting everything, and you just accept that it will corrupt everything. And what are you trying to save anyway? You're trying to save Lord of the Rings. You're trying to save Star Wars because this came up with Star Wars too. It comes up with everything because with, with uh, one of those, some of those new Star Wars movies. I thought the black kid was good. The black kid who he's like a stormtrooper who joins the good guys. I thought he was likable. I thought he was good. I thought he was a good choice. But, you know, the rest of the movie, too, it's like you do notice, like, a a major increase in the number of diverse actors. Like, then you see the the Middle Eastern pilot, X-Wing pilot. Then you see, like, the Asian girl, who I know she was involved in some online controversy over she was saying people are attacking her for her race or something. But that's when it becomes distracting, though. Like I wasn't distracted at all. Like I saw that movie in the theater shortly after it came out with an open mind. The Force Awakens—that's what it's called. The Force Awakens. And like when I was watching it, like the black guy comes on screen. I don't—I didn't think anything of it. But then you start to see the bigger picture of it, and you're like, okay, there was clearly a deliberate decision here to cast every character. Like it really is the Burger King's kid, the Burger King Kids Club. You know the way they casted that movie like you, you start to say, okay this is the burger king kids club after all it's a small world after all it's also the same thing as the burger king burger king kids club it's a tongue twister for me tonight but it, it just shows you that it's like you can see the organic decisions where it's like yeah you know so once again though it, it's it's not that people are out there and every time they see a minority on screen they think oh god it's just that when you see it in a certain frequency and a certain way, you know what they're doing and that breaks immersion. But uh I was talking about something I liked. What did I like? I don't know what I liked. It's hard to remember. There's so few things these days, but I should really remember what I actually like. I guess what got me thinking about Star Wars is just like letting them destroy everything. Like I was liberated in a way when the prequels sucked. I was like 13 years old when the first one came out. One of my good friends who's a really smart guy with different tastes than me, but good taste of his own. He saw it opening night. He saw the Phantom Menace on the opening night in 1999. And he came to school the next day and he, he was like, it's the best. And he was probably into the experience, you know. He, he's seeing, like, the first new Star Wars to come out in 20 years. The experience was probably huge. But he comes to school and he was bragging about it. And I went and saw it soon after. And I was just horribly disappointed. That movie's bad. But, and then I, I saw the next couple prequels. They just got worse, it seemed like but it was it was liberating in a way because i like i didn't think about it at the time but like many years later i look back and i'm like you know i was so obsessed with star wars when i was in elementary school like basically up until i was 13 i was so obsessed with star wars i watched the original trilogy so many times i had these books that told you the name of like every alien species and home planet and stuff like i memorized like all this data and looking back i'm like Yeah, I think it was time to to get into something else. Like, if the prequels had been awesome... Like, if I had seen the Star Wars prequels at age 13 and they had ruled... And gave me three new movies to obsess about... And, like, whole new characters and aliens and worlds to think about... I might have just stayed a Star Wars fanatic all through my teenage years. So, in a way, the fact that they sucked... It was like, okay, time to move on to something else. And... Since the, the newer sequels suck as well, it's just like, yeah, like, I mean, I don't need Star Wars. Like, I had my... <laughs> I, <laughs> I had my time with Star Wars. I did, though. Like, I had, I had... I spent plenty of time with Star Wars. Did I need to be into Star Wars forever? And so, I mean, I think it applies to all this stuff, like Lord of the Rings. Like, while I think these decisions are terrible and more sinister in nature... You know, I think that they are part of kind of a sinister agenda in a strange way. I know know that sounds dramatic, but it is part of a larger agenda. But it's like, I don't need to be into Lord of the Rings forever. Like, they can ruin Lord of the Rings. They can take this and, and get rid of it. They can do whatever they want. They're the ones who have to endure it. They're the ones who have to pretend they like it. They're the ones who have to reflect on, like, why they don't like this and worry about saying that out loud at the get together with their friends because like, you don't want to say the wrong thing about the black and Boleyn movie. Like they're the ones who have to endure that shit. I don't have to like, yeah, it sucks that there's, n- you know, n- not great stuff coming out, but just let them take it. If you can corrupt it, it deserves to be corrupted. That's kind of how I see it these days. Like, if you can ruin something, it deserves to be ruined. And I don't try to ruin anything, but, you know, let them ruin whatever they want. It's theirs. There's no point in being mad about it. Like, I have opinions. I have have observations. And they're negative. But it's not something that upsets me or angers me. It's it's more just like, okay, this is happening and I'm watching it and I, I know what's going on but let them do it. There's no need to protest. There's no need to care because everything they're doing now is just utterly forgettable. We live in a really forgettable era. We live in a very boring and forgettable time. And I, I, I hate being bored. Like I'm not a very bored person. I've been more bored lately though. And I feel fucking guilty. Like anytime I'm bored, I feel like I'm sinning you know i feel like it's a form of blasphemy to be bored while you're a living human being with all of this stuff available to pay attention to and to be interested in you know but so it's but but still it's like you know if that's the worst punishment being bored it's not so bad you can do a lot when you're bored and uh so, so if they just want to, you know, go through and, and take everything and destroy it, if, if every story throughout history needs to have black characters, if every lead needs to be changed to a woman, if they need to have She-Hulk, this is a whole one that I'm only peripherally, peripherally aware of, but I've heard murmurs about it, but like She-Hulk, she makes all these sort of feminist statements. Like, I guess there, there's a She-Hulk where she, uh, you know, gets upset about catcalling, and then there was this thing that just happened where, like, they made her twerk. They had some like hip hop or R and B chick teach CGI She-Hulk how to twerk. I didn't care about She-Hulk to begin with, but what's interesting about that stuff, like, it's desi- like this. The She-Hulk thing, it's supposed to empower. Like, She-Hulk is supposed to be kind of like this feminist character who calls out catcalling. She's, I think she's a lawyer or something. She's a, I I know more about it than I thought. But She-Hulk, she's like a lawyer. She's this empowered woman, this independent woman. She's also a big, buff, green. She's hot. She-Hulk's hot. A little too muscular for me. She's got a good thickness, though. She-Hulk's got a good thickness. she all got a good thickness. Uh, but uh, twerking, I don't fucking get. Like as as a so called assman, assman sounds better to say assman, ass man. You mean an ass man? It should be assman. As an assman though, I've never understood twerking at all. First time I ever saw it was on Jerry Springer. He had these two black women on. It was the too hot for TV. I was at my friend Nick's house, and we were renting movies and we rented too hot for TV. His his parents were cool. They let us get it. And we were watching that and it was awesome. I mean, it was great. Best of Jerry Springer right there. And, uh, (laughs) there was a part though where they, they had these two black women who are wearing like, I don't know if they're in thongs or what they're wearing, but like they lift up their skirts and they start twerking. And it's like their asses are just like jiggling all around. And it was not erotic whatsoever to me. Like, even though I'm like a a young boy and it's not like I, I get to see that kind of thing all the time, it was not erotic at all. It was really strange to see like these like, cause I like women with bigger asses, quite big, always have, but it's not attractive to me to dance like that. You know, it's not attractive to the shake it. Shaking in general is not erotic to me. I don't know when shaking became erotic Like even boobs and stuff, even boobs even boobs, not erotic to see them like bounce and shake cleavage. I mean, I like cleavage more than I like the boobs themselves. A woman with like the perfect cut shirt and the perfect boobs, (laughs) Uh, you know, that's way more erotic to me than even just like bare breasts. But like twerking, you know, it's like, a woman just like lifting up her skirt. This is just turning into like some some erotic fiction for me. But like a woman lifting up her skirt is attractive to me, but then like shaking, the shaking and the the jiggling and all that, not attractive at all. It's, it just never made sense to me. And you see, like I, I get that that's like a black thing. I get that that's something that is is like listen to music at the party, twerk. I get that's like a, like a big black thing. But as someone who like when I do look at smut, I, I do seek out white women with a good shape. But the number of them who are twerking now is just, it's way too much. There's, I have to wade through it. Like if I'm being lecherous, I have to actually wade through video clips of girls just twerking. And I'm like, just if you just stood there, perfect. What's with this shaking? What's with this? What's with this? But they had She-Hulk twerk. And uh, I guess, to me, that's no different than like Hillary Clinton dabbing. When they had Hillary Clinton do the dab pose. It's the same thing. It's like these, these stupid little publicity stunts that are supposed to make this thing culturally relevant. But one thing people have observed with, like, the female characters is there's often less of an arc. Like, the story arc of female leads in a lot of stories today, they're not usually embarrassing messes at the beginning. Like, they, they usually have it all figured out right away. The, star, the new Star Wars movies are a good example because I thought that girl was a good choice. I thought the, the main girl... Ray or Ren whatever her name is in the new Star Wars I thought she was a good choice actress wise I'm I, I had no problem with them making like a female Jedi the lead in these I didn't think it was a bad creative decision at all like to have a female lead like and the girl they chose I thought was good what made it unimpressive is that she is already basically a Jedi master like, if you watch the original Star Wars, Luke is fucking, you know, he's embarrassing. He's a teenage dork. And as he, as he tries to learn the Force, it's just like baby steps. And it really takes until the third movie that Luke is an impressive Jedi. With the new Star Wars, it's like this this girl character, there's very little arc like that. Like, she's cool and good right away. She's a badass right away. Like it takes three movies for Luke to be even remotely badass, but Ray or Wren—I mean—I get it confused. It's like Kylo Ren and Ray. I think is is the names. Kylo Ren and Ray. I think her name is Ray. But Ray, like she doesn't. She goes from like sixty miles an hour to to eighty, whereas Luke goes from like ten miles an hour to eighty. And it, yeah, it's something you see in some of these um these new these stories where it's like they're emphasizing the female lead is it's like they're afraid to make her weak because they think people will be upset, and they probably will I mean to be fair, the reason they do that is because people probably will read into it the wrong way. Right. Like if they made Rey really embarrassing and helpless at the beginning of those new Star Wars, they probably would have these very loud vocal critics being like, "Oh, so you just you think women are just helpless, huh? Oh, so you, you think women, you, you, she she's not she's she can't do it until she meets Master Luke. She needs a man's help, huh? You know, people would be upset about that." So it makes sense why, like, when they cast these female characters, but you you don't feel any investment. And what makes you invest in a character like Luke Skywalker is it's like, this guy's pathetic. He's whiny. And it makes it that much more dramatic and impressive in Return of the Jedi when he shows up looking like a badass, When he shows up in all black in a hood. When he he basically goes, you know, Luke basically pulled a Columbine as far as I'm concerned. He shows up at Jabba's palace and he kills everybody. He's wearing all black. Doesn't, doesn't really work. He was saving his friends. If you watch Return of the Jedi and, uh, I had to get a Columbine reference and I've moved on from Columbine though. I've moved on from Columbine in the last 24 hours. Star Wars is kind of like Columbine because but uh, I don't know it's just it's something you can observe and this is all very strategic because they're terrified of offending the wrong person when they make these things it's the same sort of mentality where if you're making a list of your top 10 favorite rock drummers you're going to be like oh well I got to include at least two black drummers because of the influence that African Americans had on the rhythm section in rock music, I can't possibly leave out any black people. It's all very contrived and manufactured. And what's interesting about this too is just experiencing this at the ground level where it really doesn't need to be. Like, I remember this with noise music of all things. You know, I used to be very involved in noise Industrial, noise, ambient. I was very involved in that for a little while. And you'd see some of the same attitudes many years ago. Like I still remember somebody booked a show and there was somebody who was upset. They were like, oh, so there's no women on this show? Oh, so it's just another noise show with a bunch of white, straight males. It's like maybe consider that noise music appeals more to white, straight males you know, just consider that like maybe certain things appeal more to a certain type of person. I used to see this in heavy metal as well. There'd always be those... I mean, I don't think there's anything worse than a progressive metal fan. Not, not the genre progressive metal. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's anything worse than like a, a, a politically progressive metal fan. Because metal's so averse to all that stuff. Metal's so apolitical. That it's like when someone tries to infuse sociopolitics with metal, I just find that extremely offensive. I'm actually personally offended. And I used to hear that, like being into metal, you know, I've been into metal for what, like over 20 years. Long, long over 20 years. But, you know, being into it, it's like you used to hear that from some people where it's like, oh, you know, there's not enough female representation in heavy metal. Oh, you know, there's, there's too many angry white males in heavy metal. And it's like, maybe that just appeals more to white males. You know, there's a need for human beings, young men, at least in the West, in America, and the whole West, to make angry music. Like, a lot of hip-hop that came out of the Bronx and places, it's like, it started getting angry. I mean, especially the West Coast. I don't know about the Bronx. I don't know why I thought of that. But, you know, in the West Coast, like, hip-hop, rap, it, it got very angry very quickly. It became... The music of angry young black men. Heavy metal became the music of angry young white men. Hardcore, punk. You know, it's not about like that needing diversity. It's, it's about the fact that it came from that. It's an expression of that type of person. Something about noise music, for example, appealed to white guys. It doesn't mean they excluded anyone else. It just means that's who it appeals to. And that's kind of, that's the nucleus of it in the same way that nobody has a problem seeing rap that way. Rap is, is black music. Whether you're a white person making it, you're still, you're making black music. I agree with that wholeheartedly. But if you're making rap, you're making black music, period. If you're making heavy metal, you're making white music, period. Period. Heavy metal is the white man's music. doesn't mean somebody else can't do it. Just like I don't think that somebody should stop a white guy from rapping. But I think we're all aware, whether we want to admit it or not, we're all aware that that belongs to a certain type of person. It was created by a certain type of person. And it reflects those people. Like heavy metal, in its essence, reflects the people who created it, which were, you know, overwhelmingly young white men from certain periods who had certain influences. But I started to see that in metal, like where it's like somebody would be like, oh yeah, there's not enough female representation. There's not enough, uh, oh, it's just a white boys club. And it's like, so you want it to, you want affirmative action to apply to that too? I mean, I didn't blink an eye. Like I, like one of my favorite death metal bands of all time, going back to when I was 15 is Suffocation black guitarist never like i was aware of it i'm aware of the fact that there's a black man fucking ripping through riffs and he's got dreadlocks and all this shit braids but it, it, you didn't really give it a second thought you're just like yeah suffocation they're a new york death metal band they have a they got some crazy fucking black men to rip through riffs human waste. I mean, that so good. Suffocation rules. But it's not like you look at that and you're like, yeah, I think we need a little more of that. I don't think that's enough. And there was no tokenism to it either. You know, you don't watch suffocation play and think like, oh, they got their token black guitarist. You're just like, that guy's a fucking maniac. Terrence. His name's Terrence. Terrence. His name is Terence. Terrence. That's all you think. You're just like, that guy's got fucking insane hands and fingers. But the idea that you need to like artificially increase that to meet some quota. So you can see, even on the, the grassroots level, people have been pushing that a long time. They can't just say, oh, this form of creative expression, is gen." it generally comes from young white men. Maybe a very small percentage of them prefer it that way. But overall, it's just kind of organic. I mean, it's very organic. It's just who they know, where they came from. Not much to think about. Not much much to reflect on. One of the only punk bands, hardcore bands, who had any lasting impact on me was Bad Brains. Bad Brains bad brains, bad brains (laughs) it's so fucking bad
1: bad brains, bad brains
0: what you gonna do? stupid bad brains, bad (laughs) brains someone could take that the wrong way bad brains, bad brains what you gonna do when they come for you Uh, no but it's like you don't really, like you're aware that bad brain bad brains is black black brains but you're aware of that and you're aware of the rasta influence and the uh the reggae songs they slip in there they sneak those reggae songs under the the door next thing you know i mean that i can't i can't even count how many times that happened to me growing up but like i was well aware of the fact that my bad brains cd had reggae songs i'd be just like blasting music around the house and like not paying attention and next thing i know there's reggae playing i'd be like what the fuck am i listening to but again, it's, it's like, it's, it's not really, t- there's no tokenism to it. It never felt like, I, I never knew, I knew tons of suburban punk kids. I was, you know, a suburban punk kid for a, l- a very short while before I moved on to greener pastures. But there was never, like, you were aware of the fact that they were black and that was kind of cool because it was different. Like, I think it's cool that this group of black dudes were playing, like, really fast. Like, their riffs are way better than... That's the thing that gets me about Bad Brains is, like, their riffs are way better than any of their peers. They actually have real substantial riffs to listen to. And the vocals are... You know, there's no vocals like that. And I I did think it was cool that, like, these, these four random black dudes started a punk band and we're doing something just completely unique and, and musically interesting i was aware of like them being black and everything but it, it wasn't like a there was no tokenism to it where it's like oh i'm glad i have my black punk cd to go along with my white ones oh for every 10 white punk bands i listen to i better listen to bad brains at least twice I better get some Dead Kennedys in there, too, because they got a black guy. You know, it's like, that didn't even come into your brain. And if you were to make a top ten, I mean, if I were to make, I'd probably struggle to make a top five favorite punk bands list. I don't know, I don't think I could even do a top ten without including pop punk. I like pop punk more than I do punk punk. Punk punk. I like Screeching Weasel more than I like any real punk. But, uh, speaking of which, like, I have some friends who live in Nevada, California, where Robin Williams lived for a while. And apparently, like, they told me that they saw his car and it had a Screeching Weasel sticker on it. And I'm like, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense that Robin Williams listens to pop punk Screeching Weasel. Perfect. But, uh... Anyway, I, I don't know. I've made my point. I, I've made this point many, many times. I just wonder what the end game is, because as you know, everyone knows there's no breaks, there's no enough, and all this is interesting in light of the fact that like people see previous decades as more prejudiced. Like one of the one of the basic ideas, and there's a lot of truth to it is that we were more prejudiced previously. Like, I don't think of the 90s as a particularly prejudiced time. There, were, there was a lot of, like, let's include everybody. Everybody's the same. There was a lot of very forced diversity in the 90s. But you could, I mean, like, the perception, though, is that, like, we've always been more racist in the past, and we're less so now. But then that's coupled with this cognitive dissonance that says, oh, no, now is as bad as it's ever been. Because I saw people saying that. Like, a friend of mine who is a smart girl. Smart girl. During summer 2020, she was saying that. She was like she lives here in town, and she was saying, like, people don't realize like it's, it's as bad as it's ever been. Like the hatred and racism is as bad as it ever was, which is a very difficult. it's a very hard argument to make. And uh, I guess like, you know, it's like people, d- though, they didn't watch like Die Hard. They didn't watch Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and go, oh, you just had to include a black character. And I think part of that is because they handled it intelligently and it actually benefited the story. I think I started just going off about Samuel L. Jackson when I brought up Die Hard with a Vengeance before I didn't get into like why they did a good job. But it was a chance meeting between, you know, Bruce Willis ends up in the ghetto and he goes into Samuel L. Jackson's store and he needs something and Samuel L. Jackson like doesn't want anything to do with this random white guy. And so there's this tension between them throughout the movie. Well, it starts out with like there's the whole um and Bruce Willis the bomber like makes Bruce Willis stand in the middle of the ghetto with a sandwich sign on his body that says I hate niggers. Which you know, which is really funny because if you've seen the TV movie version like because you know movies like when it, they were when they were shown on TV they infamously would like change the swear words and change anything offensive to something really goofy like i still have a vhs somewhere of the movie young guns taped from tv and there's a part where billy the kid emilio estevez says like and you can tell the governor he can kiss my ass but in the tv version that i have on tape he says and you can tell the governor to kiss my eye to kiss my eye i'm like that's so much more perverse like, the fact that you change kiss my ass, which, like, nobody thinks of literally. When someone says kiss my ass, like, I never think of somebody actually kissing someone's ass. But when you say, like, when you change that to kiss my eye, I'm, I'm now vividly imagining Emilio Estevez kissing the actor who plays the governor's eye. And it's very, it's way more intimate and gross There's another line, like he says, kiss my ass twice in that movie. Because there's another part where the TV version changed it to where he says, kiss my hand. Not as bad as kiss my eye. But still, like all of a sudden now I'm distracted. But it was always funny. But in the Die Hard of the Vengeance that they played on TV, instead of I hate niggers on the sandwich sign, it said, I hate everyone. (laughs) And what makes that so funny is that scene is... The bomber, like, as, as one of the bomber's demands, Bruce Willis has to wear that sign in the middle of the ghetto, like, basically asking to be killed. And at one point, these black guys are, like, dribbling a basketball around on a stoop, and they drop the basketball, and then they go and get it, and they see the sign, and they're like, what the fuck? And in the TV version, it's, like, it's really funny, though, because, like, in the movie movie, it makes sense. Like, they see this extreme – they see this slur on a sign – and they're like, of course, they're going to do something about it because it's aimed at them. But in the TV version where it just says, I hate everyone, it's like these black guys are really upset about misanthropy. These black dudes are like, you hate everyone? Fuck you, man. Like, like it's just so funny to me, the idea of them getting extremely upset about a sign that says, I hate everyone. And them just changing it to that. Like, it must have been so fun to make those decisions. It had to be so fun to like to be like, okay, we have to put this on TV, but we got to change this, this, and this. What are we going to do? We'll make the sign say, I hate everyone. And the black guys are going to get upset about that. But that movie, it played on that stuff really well. It was like, oh yeah, this this black character and this white guy get paired together and they don't want to be. And it plays on that tension really well. It's intelligent. It's not distracting or insulting. It's just part of the story. But I think along with just letting them destroy things, along with them just ruining things, just letting them do it, not caring. Like, like I'm I'm interested in it. Like, I, I, do, I find it... It gives me something to think about. But beyond that, just being like, oh, hey, they can do that. They can destroy things. They can taint things. They can turn everything into... Just another offshoot of the usual old propaganda and messaging. Just let them do it. But there's a part of me that's like, it'd be fun to play into it. It'd be fun to be the worst version of them. Like, I sometimes think about that, not actually doing it, but I do sometimes think, like, it'd be so fun to just go all in on that. To be the person lecturing everyone. To, to be so over-the-top about it, like to play by their rules, but to do it in such a ruthless, over-the-top way that it makes them hate it. But that's a dangerous game to play. Like That's like casting a spell on yourself and hoping it doesn't take root. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't take root inside of you. To be like, I'm going to make everything that way. Like somebody commented to me once, I mean, just to show you how deep this goes... Many years ago, like 2015 or 2016, a guy who's not even that concerned with this stuff, who's just kind of like a loves everybody type dude, he did comment to me when he said, you never draw black black people. You never draw black people. And I was just like, I guess not. But the fact that he noticed that kind of surprised me. It shouldn't, and this is years ago, but I was just like, that's weird. It's a weird thing to say to me. Oh, in your weird private expression, creative expression, I notice that you never draw black people. I guess I don't. You know, I guess you noticed that. I need to draw at least at least like 15, at least 13% of what I draw needs to be black people. Thank you. Now I know. But to be that person, to be that person who's pointing that out like it'd be fun in a way to just embrace that. And start talking that way. And and just make them sick of it. Just noticing, like, you know, like reminding them of this invisible quota every time they do something. Posting things online, like, I just wanted to let you know about this new black artist. I think that you guys, you know, aren't really giving enough time to, to emerging black artists. And I'm, I'm letting you know, you should listen to this album, be the worst version of that, but you don't want to be, (laughs) it's like, you don't want to do that jokingly, but it's kind of surprising. You don't even see anybody doing that. Like you see people who are really bad at parodying it. Like there's nothing more embarrassing than like right-wing pundits who try to caricature quote unquote wokeness, but they're so over the top and stupid about it. Like. You see people like Ben Shapiro do that, and it's just like, ugh. Like, there's some other guys like that that have gotten a lot of traction as as kind of reactionary pundits, and they'll parody that stuff, but like they do it in such a heavy-handed way. It's not very, it's not subtle, and it's not funny. They just kind of like, it's just another form of like pointing out the hypocrisy or something. But I think like somebody who's able to do that subtly. And I've seen parody, like people who do parody videos and stuff, but it's all, there's always like a wink. Like you can always see them winking at the camera, but I mean, it it would almost be a good Andy Kaufman-esque thing. And I would hate to politicize Andy Kaufman, but it would be, I'm almost imagining like an Andy Kaufman sort of thing where like, you don't know if he's serious or not. You don't know what he's doing. That could be an effective way to tackle this stuff. You don't want to actually do it. But to like, to deal with this stuff in a, in a way that's over the top, but also subtle, where you basically take somebody else's rules and hammer them back down their own throat. But then you're playing that game. And the, the best thing seems to be just not to engage it, to be aware of it, but not to engage it. And you know, so much tempts us to engage, though. I mean, I'm, I'm so tempted to talk about it, but I think that's different from engaging with it. Because there's no no good seems to come from that. Nobody's engaged it in a meaningful way. People offer their critique, they offer their, their response, but nobody's really dealt with it in a meaningful way, and I think that speaks volumes. I think it speaks volumes that nobody's been able to do that. I just imagine eventually people will get sick of it. I know a lot of people are true believers, and there's a number of other people who aren't true believers, but they're terrified of losing friends they're terrified of ostracization so they just go along with it but at some point i think people are going to get sick of it at some point like somebody is going to say like hit the brakes and then somebody else is going to say thank you I've, i've been wanting to say that all along and when this shit comes to an end and like it will come to some kind of end it really can't go along like this. Like it's so demoralizing and it's so silly and stupid. That it can't it can't keep going like this forever. I mean, I've been saying that for years, and it keeps going. So I, I you know, I, I'm not Nostradami. Um, but uh, at some point, though, like the people who are really into this are gonna not like it anymore. And when they don't like it, and the tide tr- turns. They're going to act like they've felt that way all along because that's what people do. In the same way that people who have taken on these new radical progressive beliefs so quickly and they act like they've always had those beliefs. They act like they they act like they've always been in favor of defunding the police. In the same way they've taken on those beliefs and they keep up this charade as if they've always believed it. When they let go of all that shit, when they're done with that shit, they're going to act like they were never caught up in it. They're going to act like they were over it a long time ago, or they saw the flaws in it a long time ago. Let them. Just let them. There'll be no need to, um, there's no need to shame anybody. There's no need to prove anybody's a hypocrite or a liar. If people wake up from it, just be happy they woke up from it. Because there will probably be something else to be worried about. There will probably be some other movement, some other crazy form of belief that will, you know, fill that void. Because something usually does. It's always something. But that's probably what will happen. There's, is people will lose interest. There will be, first, a slow change. And then uh, an even quicker one. It'll it'll go. It'll move past the tipping point, and all of a sudden, people no longer give a shit about this stuff. That'll be good. You know, it'll probably be frustrating because you'll see it, and you'll be like, "Oh, you were one of the biggest proponents. You were one of the most obnoxious people all along. How can you just distance yourself from that like that?" Well, that's what people do. That's what people do, and that's fine. But uh, I don't know. I'm curious what the next uh, intellectual property will be. Seems like we're running out of intellectual property to do this with. You know, we're doing it with real life European history, we're doing it with fantasy stories heavily informed by Northern Europe and the European Middle Ages. You know, once they go for that, it seems like they've exhausted a lot of other areas. You know, they've already done it with, uh, you know, most, uh, you know, just just about everything's been impacted one way or another. So they're eventually going to run out of material. Like, clearly they're not capable of producing I don't want to say anything, but they're not capable of producing very much that has any lasting impact. It doesn't seem that they're particularly skilled at coming up with new stories. Because, you know, that'd be another, that'd be a completely different thing if they were coming up with original stories that served as propaganda, that served their agenda. It'd be totally different. You'd just say, okay, well, at least they made it themselves. At least they took something they made. And it'd probably be better too. I don't I don't know if that's true, but it'd probably be better than taking an existing intellectual property and doing this to it. But to be honest, I want to see more. Like I'm kind of at the accelerationist point of this, where there's not many stones left to unturn. So I'm kind of excited. I'm like, what next? What will you tackle next? What will you revise next? What will you corrupt next? I want to see how far you can go. I'm very interested in just seeing how far it actually goes. So please, like, turn over more stones. Spread it. Because when you do that, like, when you keep reaching, that's how you eventually reach a point where you can't touch anything else. you know eventually it's got to fall apart you know eventually it's got to exhaust all of its resources so the more resources it uses the better because the sooner it will exhaust them